on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. Great to have you here with us this afternoon. This is the Country Hour and coming up between now and one o'clock, the Shadow Agriculture Minister will join us to talk all things biosecurity. You'll hear a bit of hope that is growing amongst meat processors who are still shut out of China. And we take a look at some proposed changes to the use of a popular pesticide, chlorpyrifos. There are only a really broadly um, six uses that we'd retain, which are very kind of limited types of uses. More on that very soon. You can join the conversation at any point across the afternoon by texting us on 0467922684 or if you're on the ABC Listen app, just hit contact the program. First this afternoon, we are heading straight to Parliament, where there's been some fiery exchanges at this morning's budget estimates hearing. The New South Wales Agriculture Minister, Tara Moriarty, immediately had her coalition counterparts offside as she opted to zoom in instead of appear in person. From local land services funding cuts to cross-border discussions, ABC Central West reporter Hugh Hogan watched on as the Ag Minister made her appearance, and Hugh's with us now to bring us up to speed. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. I think fiery is one way to put it. How did you find that appearance today? Yeah, fiery is definitely the word. It was also combative, I suppose. Um, also pretty pretty unconstructive. There was a lot of questions uh, that weren't answered, I suppose. There was a lot of running down of the clock. Uh, basically, the whole committee... Uh, was put offside from what I can tell from my uh, watch along this morning. And it wasn't just the fact that the minister um, had only appeared via Zoom, Amelia. She'd also agreed to do a full day's sitting uh, a couple of weeks ago and then just two days ago uh, cut that down to just an hour and a half, even less. Uh, so she'd appeared via video link from Broken Hill this morning for just an hour and a half. And as you said, they were immediately offside um, and the questions were immediately pretty fiery. So let's have a quick listen to, to some of the, the hearings. Minister, Minister, I'll just redirect you. I'll redirect you, Minister. You, you told this committee that you would be here. You now suddenly have plans that you can't be here. You've truncated the time. This is unprecedented. No one has done this except you today, showing a complete disregard for transparency. Why have you shortened the time when, you're, when you indicated that you would be available for the full time? Why? Uh, I am available. I'm right here to answer questions. Oh, Minister, uh, stop doing your repeated lines that you've been given by your media uh, advisors and answer the question. Show some respect to the process and the people of New South Wales. Yeah, that was uh, Nationals member Bronnie Taylor there questioning the member, uh, the Minister for Western New South Wales and Agriculture, Tara Moriarty, this morning, Amelia. Yeah, seems like a lot of that um, small hour and a half window was taken up with, uh, with things like that. But how did it, I mean, the Minister there sort of got got offside quite quickly by the seams. How, how did she react to that sort of questioning? Did we get many answers about real issues? No, if you think it got more constructive after that, Amelia, you'd be dead wrong. It was basically an hour of that sort of interaction, particularly um, with the um, with the opposition, the Nationals and the Liberals, but uh, also a few of the crossbench members that are on that uh, budget estimates committee were, were getting quite frustrated with the lack of answering and, the, and the, what they said was a draining down of the clock uh, from the Minister during her an hour and a half um, allotted slot. So it didn't get much better from there, uh, and, there and, and, and I suppose, uh, and then uh, there was a few other things mentioned as well, Amelia. Yeah, so local land services cuts, that was one of them, uh, travel cuts in particular. 
Yeah, so there was questioned about cuts, not to the overall budget, uh, but to the, the actual allowance for travel travel money. Um, and Tara Moriarty uh, was questioned about why uh, those cuts were made and whether she supported them. So let's have another listen to a bit of the hearing. You have made substantial cuts to the local land services travel budget. Do you support those cuts? I support local land services. Who do Minister, really- I will redirect you and one more time. Do you support the cuts that you have made to the local land services travel budget, seeing that the most important thing they do, as you have said time and time again this morning, is to get out into the regions? Do you support the cuts that you and your government have made to the transport budget of the local land services? Uh, I support the work that local... OK, I'll move on, Minister, because you obviously can't answer the question. Nationals member Bronnie Talley there, again questioning the Agriculture Minister Tara Murray about those budget cuts to the travel budget of local land services. But there was also questions about the reduction in remuneration that's been offered to the board members of the local land services. So we don't have a lot of detail on those cuts at the moment, Amelia, but hopefully they come out uh, throughout uh, the day, in the next couple of days. Uh, but yeah, strong questioning there about those cuts from local land services and not much answers forthcoming from the Minister so far. You're hearing from ABC Central West reporter Hugh Hogan this afternoon. He's been watching on these budget estimate hearings this morning as the Ag Minister, State Ag Minister, made her appearance. What else did we... Did we get much else out of the hearing? Uh, as I said, it wasn't very constructive, but there was one uh, exchange between, uh, again, Bronnie Taylor and the Minister when it was discovered that the Minister didn't actually know who the current cross-border commissioner was, Amelia. Now, that's a position that we all became very familiar with during the COVID years when it was such mm. an issue, but it's an ongoing office that deals with cross-border issues, you know, all the time, not just during COVID. Uh, and the Minister couldn't actually answer who the current cross-border commissioner was or what had happened to the previous one. So let's have a quick listen to what happened there. Minister, why have you not said who the new cross-border commissioner is? This is a very important position to people in regional New South Wales. There is an office border commissioner who are doing uh, work in relation to cross-border issues just as... Uh, so, Minister, people... you, don't know, you don't know who the cross-border commissioner is. You've made no announcement about who the new person is and no-one knows that Mr McTavish, one of the most well-respected people who has a public service medal, has left the department. This is farcical. Farcical. Bronnie Taylor, again there, Amelia, questioning about the cross-border commissioner. It was revealed eventually from a department secretary that Kalina Koloff is the new cross-border commissioner. And, Amelia, I just had a quick look on Twitter and I noticed James McTavish's Twitter profile in his bio. It says, used to be that border fella. So there you go. Mm, Some very, very interesting commentary there, Hugh. I appreciate you finding um, a bit of news quality out of that, what seems to be a very heated discussion there this morning. Thanks, Amelia. Anytime. Thank you. Hugh Hogan, your ABC Central West reporter, right here on the Country Hour at 12 past 12. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. We do have two total fire bans in place today down in the southwestern and northern Riverina districts. But each day, of course, through summer, the RFS is asking us to be on alert, particularly those harvesting at the minute to keep an eye on conditions. We know, sadly, each season we do see devastating fires often sparked from these sorts of activities. New South Wales RFS Deputy Commissioner Peter Keckney joins us this afternoon to take us through alerts in place today. Deputy Commissioner, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, so what sort of alerts bans do we have in place currently in, in regards to harvest? Look, in regards... Well, firstly, we have two total fire bans, as you've touched on today, in the Northern Riverina and the Southwestern. 
And look, we have high fire danger conditions across a large part of western New South Wales as we get these continuing high temperatures, lower humidities, and, and as we see some days, these, these stronger winds. But particularly in regard to safety alerts, look, what we ask every day is for, for landholders to be aware of the conditions in their local area. And it's a decision which ultimately rests with the landholder about whether they continue with harvest operations. Obviously, you know, hot machinery, dry environments, it only takes that one spark for a fire to start. But we do at times issue a harvest safety alert and we'll do that through the media, social media, through local connections. And then what we're saying is, look, fire fire danger conditions are, are heightening and we want farmers to then have another look at it and make sure wh- what they're doing is still safe to do. Are they are they satisfied that they can conduct those activities safely? And we provide some information on our on our website, which people can look up um, through a number of our local fire control centres. We've provided you know magnetics. We've provided stickers that people can put in harvesters or, or around the around the farm. And it's just a case of looking at what's the temperature, what's the humidity and what's the wind speed. Therefore, what does the fire danger rating come out to and when might I look to stop those activities? Yeah, that grain harvesting guide certainly a great resource to um, keep keep an eye on, keep checking back to. You do have a lot of good resources, including uh, making the fire safety plans as well for the homes. Um, but we know that these fires can be costly. I mean, have we seen any any get out of control this year or reflecting on previous years? Um, just to remind us how how these can get out of hand? Look, we have seen some fires this year. Um, to, I suppose, thankfully, we've seen more fires on on um, crop, on areas that have already been harvested, so through stubble and the like, than we've seen on still, you know, crops that are yet to be harvested. But we do see year after year, you know, some quite large fires. Obviously, they're, they're really dry, they're cured, they're harvesting for a reason. Um and they do, they move so quickly, the wind just pushes them along so easily. And it is, it's, it's a huge economic impact, not only to the property where the fire starts, not only if it impacts onto the machinery itself, but particularly it leaves and impacts on your neighbour's place so very quickly can be a huge cost to individuals and to local community. Mm. We've touched on those two fire bans in place today. Probably half of the state, I suppose, is under a high fire danger rating. What is the outlook for the next few days? I think we're all hoping that this heat wave will dissipate, but um, the winds and the heat are lingering. Look, we, we still see a few days of this. Whilst tomorrow we'll see the focus move from so much of that, that very southwestern corner of the state, we could see areas all the way to Sydney see total fire bans tomorrow. But a number of areas through the southern slopes, our lower central western plains, are likely to see, if not total fire ban sort of thresholds, very close to it. They'll certainly have very high fire danger conditions there, perhaps extreme. Um, we see that continue again on, uh, sorry, an easing on Friday, and then on Saturday we see that heat really return to large parts of the state, and I'd expect to see several total fire bans again on Saturday. There's no great relief on the horizon for us in terms of significant rain, significant widespread rainfall. You know, it, ultimately it is summer in, in eastern Australia. We see these repeatedly hot days and we see these days with, with the wind that just pushes those fire dangers up. Deputy Commissioner, we really appreciate your time this afternoon and, um, you know, we're hoping for the best, of course, but I know that your crews are prepared for the worst. 
No, look, thanks for that. And look, to everybody, please prepare now. Know what you're going to do if a fire threatens. Know what your family's going to do and make sure, make sure you're ready. Thank you again. Really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. New South Wales RFS Deputy Commissioner Peter McKechnie there with us at 12, uh, 17 past 12 on the Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi with you, filling in for Michael Condon again this week. And we have just got some information coming through from the RFS counterparts in Victoria. The Country Fire Authority in Victoria has issued a Watch and Act message for a fire burning near the border. If you are in the vicinity of uh, Corowa, it might be close to you, might be seeing some smoke at this point. You can tune into ABC Goulburn Murray for any more details, but there is a grass fire that has reached a Watch and Act uh, alert. This is for Nathalia, approximately 40 k's northwest of Shepparton. A grass fire at Evans Road there is not yet under control. It's travelling in a southeasterly direction from Evans Road, and the Victorian Country Fire Authority is advising people to. Uh, take shelter there. This is for a fire burning 40 k's northwest of Shepparton. If that alert escalates, I will bring it to you here on the Country Hour. But if you want more up to date, more um, you know, uh, more updates on that, you can tune into ABC Goulburn Murray on the ABC Listen app. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And speaking of those harvest alerts, we have just got one through in the last 60 seconds or so due to the increased fire risk in uh, the Leeton, Narandra, Griffith, Carathal, Hay and Murrumbidgee areas. Uh, the RFS is requesting that harvest operators stop there immediately, check the weather conditions and before deciding to continue. Very timely advice there with the, these uh, heat wave conditions not looking to ease any time soon. It is 18 past 12 and the head of Australia's largest meat cooperative has welcomed news that China has relisted three Australian meat plants. The Casino Food Co-op, formerly known as the Northern Cooperative Meat Company, was suspended by China in May 2020 due to labelling concerns. The chief executive, Simon Stahl, told Kim Honan that he's hopeful the co-op suspension will also be lifted soon. There's obviously movements happening and the relationships getting better all the time. So I think uh, for those three plants in particular, it was pretty tough on them uh, because they uh, had done the right thing during COVID. And, but now it's the right thing that they've been relisted. But these plants were banned from China after the Northern Cooperative Meat Company was, is that correct? Yeah, it was after, after we were and, and some other plants were. But I would say, whilst, whilst I, I would prefer to be relisted for sure, I would say that it's quite right that um, the self-suspension um, by some of those plants and the nomination that they had a COVID issue was the right thing to do, and so I think they deserve certainly to be back on uh, the list of China, for sure. Is there any indication when um, the cooperative will have its suspension lifted by China? What are you hearing? No, no nothing formally. Um, in market, there's a lot of talk in market. Um, there's a lot of talk that it'll be... Uh, sometime before the end of this year. Uh, there's already talk about getting product from uh, the suspended plants, including ours, in, in January. But but we've heard that uh, a few times in the past few years, so we, um, we, won't, um, we certainly won't count our chickens until uh, we see them hatch. Mm. Do, you, do you know where negotiations are at? Are you getting any intel there? 
Um, no, look, I, I do know that the, um, the federal government are working very hard, the department's working very hard, and there has been a lot. There was a lot more at, uh, recently, um, particularly when the Prime Minister had visited. Um, but no, we're not privy to those discussions. And, and I must say neither should we be. I, I guess that's between government to government, and if they can um, keep that ball rolling, I think we'll all be better off in the long run. Are you preparing for the suspension to, to be lifted at your plant? Um, no, as you know, we've got an office in China and we've maintained that office in China. They certainly are across where the market's at. Uh, the market is quite soft in China, uh, ironically, at the moment for, for meat demand and, and pricing's not as good as it has been. But, of course, it is uh, progressing to be one of the biggest markets in the world. So um, over the next few years, it'll certainly be a lot of opportunities. And when the suspension is eventually lifted, do you have product to start exporting to China Will you start shifting product from other markets? What's your plan? No, look, we'll certainly have product available, but of course it's got to meet the price. And um, and we're not just going to jump back into the China market. Uh, we, as you as you know, Kim, we had a lot of service processing here uh, some three years ago when before the suspension. Uh, that service processing has left. Um, we're certainly not going to be entertaining 100% of someone's product going back to China and leaving us at the same risk. Uh, and you shouldn't do that in any market. Um, so we'll have a reassessment of that, um, but we certainly will have product available if the price is right. And so before the suspension, what was the percentage of your product being exported to China? Uh, it would have been around the 30%, 20 to 30%. And what do you plan it to be in the future? Oh, look, look I'd hazard a guess that uh, 5 to 10% would be uh, topping us out, uh, depending on, uh, again, the price will have a big say in, in how much we put to China as well. But you will retain your office in Shanghai? Yeah, yeah, no, we're looking forward to it. Um, it's it's uh, been able to stay afloat, let's say, for the last five years without a lot of product going through the office from our end. They've been able to import product from the US and New Zealand um, in our absence. So um, now we're looking forward to, uh, you know, hopefully next year resuming uh, trade through that office. That's the Casino Food Co-op's Chief Executive, Simon Stahl, speaking there with our reporter, Kim Honan. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the federal government's books are looking much better than expected, almost moving back into surplus, according to the government's mid-year budget update released today. Higher commodity prices, strong corporate profits and low unemployment have slashed the deficit to just over a billion dollars. But we didn't really see much new spending in that budget uh, update. Shadow Agriculture Minister David Littleproud joins us this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nearly back to a surplus. Would this have been a good chance to maybe top up some spending in the ag sector? Well, we're nearly back at a surplus or the expense of regional Australia. Uh, The billions that have been ripped out for infrastructure, the critical infrastructure to give regional Australia the tools to continue to pay the bills, the high the high premiums that we've got and the tax income we've got uh, from our resource and agriculture sector needs the support of infrastructure to get it from a paddock or a pit to a port. That's how you pay the bills. And we already saw in their first budget in October last year where they ripped over $7 billion uh, away just from water infrastructure, but nearly $20 billion all up out of infrastructure from regional Australia. If you don't give regional Australia the tools they need, then uh, Australia's poorer for it. So this, this near surplus is all a result of commodity prices of resources and agriculture and the cuts to regional Australia. Um, we, we're watching very carefully to see what they particularly do with biosecurity. We put in over a billion dollars in biosecurity uh, in their last two budgets. They've managed to put in a bit over $100 million in addition to that, which is required and some of the challenges we're facing. 
uh, around FMD, LSD, uh, virolamide, uh, fire ants, uh, but obviously uh, we want to make sure that regional Australia gets its fair share and that's the most important thing because if regional Australia gets its fair share, Australia does well. You listed quite a few of our top concerns there in the biosecurity space, but there are it seems to be uh, growing threats from whether it's within Australia or, or our neighbouring countries. I, I note that the federal government put more than a billion dollars in in May. They topped up on uh, the fire ant funding only in October with a, just over a quarter of a billion there. Do you think we are pl- well placed for research as well as on ground action to tackle these incursions that we've seen in, in so many spaces lately? Well, what I fear is that we've been slow to act, whether it be FMD, they were slow to put mats out to, to try and take away some of those uh, vectors and those risks uh, to Australian agriculture, whether it be LSD in terms of making sure the rollout of the vaccines that were sitting there are ready to go but were stuck in a fridge, and then fire ants. I can't blame the federal government for fire ants. That's, that's an abject failure of the Queensland government. Every state and territory, as well as federal governments, had put uh, over $413 million into eradicating fire ants. And can I say in Queensland, it was it was isolated to a small geographical area about four years ago, and then it's exploded because the Queensland government, who are charged with the responsibility of taking that $413 million uh, and trying to eradicate, had let it explode. It's now over the border, and the federal government put an additional 200 odd million dollars over four years, the Invasive Species Species Council believes that that should be about $200 million a year to eradicate. So just understand these fire ants, uh, they take away the amenity of you to be able to go outside uh, and in in extreme cases have killed people. So it's important that um, the money that we are putting in, we don't necessarily put it into the Queensland government, we might have to find another mechanism because the Queensland government haven't had the competency to be able to do anything with your money from New South Wales or from around the country. Uh, for us to try and eradicate this, and that's that's a real concern. It's already up in Toowoomba as well, which means it can get into the Murray-Darling, so it's not just um, near the Tweed that we've got to worry about. It's also, now that it's up in Toowoomba, gets in the waterways, we've got some real problems. And so we need to move quickly, and we need to listen to the experts, and if we need to spend our money, we need to do it collectively and quickly. I'm sure the Queensland government would, would argue with you there, but uh, this state and well, Commonwealth they, they partnership... Can argue, but the result- they can argue, but the results are there. They're the ones that were charged with the responsibility of eradication. They were the agency that were given over $400 million by the Australian taxpayer to eradicate. And to see that going from a small geographical area to now across the border, um, you can't you can't run away, you can't hide and put your head in the sands. They asked for extra money last year, the year before when we were in government, and we gave it to them immediately, uh, all, all uh, through the approval of not just the Commonwealth, but the states, because other states own the money in this. So the results speak for themselves and you're not going to face up to that. You're going to keep doing the same thing. We're going to keep getting the same results. Shadow Agriculture Minister David Littleproud is our guest this afternoon on the Country Hour, 28 past 12. I also wanted to uh, get your thoughts on this new migration strategy that we saw announced earlier this week. Uh, Do you think that will achieve anything for our ag workforce? Well, sadly, no, because uh, we've known since September 2022 at the Jobs and Skills Summit, which I went to. I think it was important that, um, as the Nationals leader, I went to the Jobs and Skills Summit to be constructive, to be a voice for regional Australia and for agriculture. And it wasn't just me. It was NFF and COSBAR who made it clear there that we needed an an additional 172,000 workers to get food and fibre from a paddock to uh, the supermarket or onto your plate or into a port 
the best that they've done since then is around uh, 16,000 additional workers because they limited us to the Palm Scheme. The Palm Scheme at best could get us about 42,000 workers. So the math didn't work and now they've made changes to the Palm Scheme that made it even harder. Taking away ha- averaging provisions for the horticulture sector, which means if you have a week of, of, of rain and you still have to pay those workers a, a minimum 30-hour week for them to lie on the couch... You can't average it over the season when it stays dry for a longer period. You couldn't use common sense because the union said you can't. Uh, We've got a provision now where our farmers, our horticulturists, are responsible for the vehicles, the mechanical responsibility of the vehicles on which the workers come to and from work every day, even though they've purchased it themselves. Uh, So we've made this far too difficult. So the ag visa being taken away has meant investment confidence has gone, uh, and it means that we simply don't have the workers that we require all through the supply chain, but more broadly than that. We need more skilled workers in regional Australia beyond agriculture to support the agricultural sectors in our communities, and that's the broad spectrum of of, uh, of skills that, that are required. And, and you need to start with some builders, to be candid, because um, you can bring as many people as you want, but unless you've planned and you can actually build some homes for them, there's no reason to come to Australia. And we see even in this change of this last migration, uh, the policy is that there's no, there's no emphasis and there's no actual... Um, weight given to uh, tradies, and we're going to go. We're going to go without. And we're going to take longer to build homes, which means people are going to take longer to come. It's a big conversation, Mr. Littleproud. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Shadow Agriculture Minister David Littleproud. There at half past twelve, you are tuned to the Country Hour. We'll take a look at the weather and news headlines soon. But a popular insecticide used across Australia could be banned in a proposal by our chemical regulator. The APVMA has proposed to change the use of chlorpyrifos over concerns around human health, environmental safety and trade risks. It was one of 21 chemicals that were discovered in the Richmond River Health Study of 2020 and 21 that we heard about yesterday. It's also thought to be the cause of death of a brush turkey at Safety Beach on the mid-north coast recently. Now, the APVMA's acting chief executive, Dr Melissa McEwen, says the regulator would like to see that insecticide phased out over a 12-month period. Chlorpyrifos, which is a broad-spectrum insecticide, which is used in horticulture, broadacre farming and to deal with termites, we're currently proposing uh, a regulatory decision that would see um, by far the majority of uses removed from um, labels. Uh, And in some cases, uh, we'd be looking to cancel 11 products and six active constituents. When you say change the the usage, so can you put that into sort of layman's terms of what that sure. means? Sure. So the labels for uh, and usage patterns that are allowed uh, can mean all sorts of things. So um, chlorpyrifos, for example, has uh, an enormous range of different kinds of uses, whether it's um, treating certain kinds of for for treatments for certain kinds of beetles for using for termites. So a lot of the use that it, a lot of the things that it's used for, particularly in horticulture for use on, you know, in, in dealing with particularly beetles in uh, many areas will be removed. Um, there are only a really broadly um, six uses that we'd retain, which are very kind of limited types of uses. So 
One is around cattle ear tags to prevent fleas and and other bugs. Um, impregnated banana bags, so bags that you put bananas in, I guess. Um, ornamental uh, use for protecting from Argentine ants and scarab beetle larvae. Termiticides, so termite nests or colonies in walls. Urban pests, um, so outdoor control of fleas and ants. And commercial turf protection, so spraying for funnel ants. The majority of other uses, which cover a whole range of horticultural type uses, um, will be removed. So why is the APVMA looking to do this? So um, we've undertaken a a review of um, chlorpyrifos and its use. We've found uh, that there are challenges for uses for human health for the for the users for people for sort of workplace health and safety use um, there are environmental impacts from the use of chlorpyrifos and also um, there are some trade risks residues uh, and so forth that can be in products where chlorpyrifos is used that would mean that products weren't acceptable overseas. That's the APVMA's Acting Chief Executive, Dr Melissa McEwen, speaking there with Michelle Stanley. There is a three-month consultation period on this, open now until March. If you'd like to take part, just jump online and search APVMA consultation. It is 26 minutes to one. Bindi Bryce is here with the latest from the newsroom. Good afternoon. Hey, Amelia. New South Wales paramedics are being briefed by their union leadership about the state of stalled pay talks. The health services union says our AMBOs are the lowest paid in the country and they're threatening to let their professional registrations lapse if the government won't offer a 20% increase. Premier Chris Minns joined the crisis talks after warning the triple zero emergency system will collapse if paramedics quit. Federal, state and territory ministers are meeting today to talk about a national ban on engineered stone. Recent workers' compensation figures suggest nearly 700 people have developed the incurable lung disease silicosis from working on the products, which are commonly used in kitchen and bathroom benchtops. The National Construction Workers' Union is hoping engineered stone will be banned in Australia by July next year. And rock singer Jimmy Barnes has revealed he's undergoing emergency heart surgery today. He's used social media to confirm he'll have a valve replaced after doctors found a recent chest infection had spread to his heart. The 67-year-old has been in hospital for a bacterial infection. We hope he's okay, Millie. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness. Bindi Bryce, thank you for the update there. No worries. Bindi Bryce from the ABC Upper Hunter Newsroom. It is 25 minutes to one. Let's check in with what's happening at the Weather Bureau. Chris Webb is there this afternoon. Hi, Chris. G'day, Millie. How are you going? Well, thank you. Let's take a look at, um, firstly, those places that have come back into the heatwave warnings. Severe heatwaves stretching over more parts of the state again. Yeah, today it's pretty hot over inland parts. Um, I see uh, Hay and Cobar both both reach 38 degrees at midday, Burke 37. Um, Yeah, that's associated with a northerly flow ahead of a trough that's in the far west of the state at the moment. Um, And it looks as though, as well as the heat uh, out that way, the trough's going to trigger off some um, pretty decent thunderstorms as the day wears on. Um, There were a couple of storms lingering around overnight. Um, There's still a couple out there, but it looks like in the far west of the state, it looks like they'll tend to increase about sort of that central third of the state during the afternoon. 
and uh, we'll also have some storms develop about the southeast. So some of those ones about the southern inland and southeast are expected to be severe this afternoon and evening, um, just just ahead of this trough that's uh, started to become mobile. Yeah. Do we have any severe storm warnings in place just yet, or are you expecting to issue some? Yeah, no, there's nothing out yet. Um, but the idea, yeah, the the severe storm specialists are keeping a close eye on the southern inland, so particularly the Riverina area. Um, a couple of decent storms have just got going on the snowies, so they're keeping a close eye on that. And also the south coast, um, those Areas particularly have sort of favourable severe weather kind of uh, signatures in the guidance at the moment, so that that'll be the main watch. But look, it could there could be something anywhere over the sort of on and west of the divide this afternoon, as far as a localised severe storm goes, with um, the usual, you know, sort of large hail, uh, damaging winds, and very briefly and locally heavy rain. Um, the trough seems to looks like it's going to move a bit further to the east tomorrow, um, so. Uh, it's it's a fairly active system, so there'll be some storms persisting overnight, particularly about the ranges and western slopes. But then as the day wears on tomorrow, it looks like most of the storm activity will be in the northeast. And once again, there's potential for some localised severe storms. And the weather should clear right away from the western half, or the west and south, as the day wears on. Mm-hmm. Now I uh, noticed. Other, oh, sorry. Uh, oh sorry, no, Chris. no, go right ahead. <laughs> I noticed oh, in the forecast we've gone from isolated showers now to scattered showers. Does that mean there's more of the state will see them or less? Uh, it, it just means that in the areas that see them, um, the, there'll be more widespread. So I guess it's just hinting at an increasing trend mm-hmm. in the shower and thunderstorm activity um, over the next day or two. I guess the other thing for tomorrow is that the heat's going to spread further east towards the coast. Um, so a hot day for the hunter again tomorrow, but also um, you know, mostly all of the northeastern third or so of New South Wales. Um, so as well as that uh, storm activity, you know, there's potential for some really elevated fire dangers. And we have some elevated fire dangers, no warning, but elevated fire mm-hmm. dangers through the southwest today, but more spreading sort of about the northeast tomorrow. Uh, so, yeah, another another pretty hot day for a chunk of uh, New South Wales before a southerly change comes up uh, to the central part of the coast late in the day. And there'll be some milder conditions through the southern inland with a southwesterly. Um, but yeah, as I said, sort of the northeast third or so would be right up in the high 30s again. Um, so yeah, it looks as though we, um, the trough stalls in the northeast for Friday, a few storms possibly severe up that way, um, milder across the southern inland and for, for most of the coast on Friday, but the, the heat comes back um, a bit more widespread across the northeast third or so on Saturday before um, more of a clearing change later Saturday and into Sunday. So we get some somewhat milder conditions through most of the state by Sunday. But yeah, it's a bit of a long haul, haul until then for sure. It is summer, isn't it? Chris, thank yeah. you so much for running yeah. us through all that today. Really appreciate your time. No worries. Bye. Thank you. Chris Webb from the Bureau of Meteorology there with you on the Country Hour where it is 20 to 1. On days of extreme or catastrophic fire danger, fire bans are issued. That means activities like burning off, using an angle grinder, outdoor welding, campfires and cooking on wood barbecues are not allowed. Fines and penalties apply if you don't follow the rules. If you're not sure, check what is and isn't allowed. 
help keep our community safe and reduce the chance of bushfires. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. And just a reminder today, we do have those total fire bans in place for the Northern Riverina and southwestern districts and high fire danger for a large chunk of inland uh, New South Wales as well. I thought no one was talking to me today. I had the wrong system set up. You can always text 0467 922 Linda from Lismore saying she, I think she's a bit fed up with hearing from shadow ministers being negative towards any progress made. Uh, Linda says the opposition are into control rather than sharing of information. Tony, good afternoon to you and Griffith. Thanks for your lovely text coming in. It's nice to be filling in this week. And uh, Greg at Ningen says too much inefficient, ineffective spending by in the bush by the Nationals in the previous government. Greg says there was money wasted there as well. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. And one more text there from Lynette. She feels like the feds are ripping off rural Australia. You can send your thoughts in as well, 0467 18 to 1. And the Lachlan Valley Water Group says a new evaporation rule has left irrigators with less water than expected in their accounts for 2024. Water New South Wales says the formula, which helps to calculate evaporation rates, has had some issues since it came into play earlier this year. Water New South Wales says it is working on a more simple design and it has been consulting with irrigators associations in recent weeks. But Lachlan Valley Water Chair Tom Green told Lani Otaway that communication from the agency hasn't been good enough. They've taken more water than was originally proposed out of people's accounts, um, which is very disappointing and, you know, is a real concern. Although I think the bigger issue is here that it's showing Water New South Wales and both the department are really lacking in um, any ability to consult, but also any ability with the loss of intellectual property out of their business and people leaving, that they really don't have the ability any longer to implement practical policy on the ground um, and consult with their stakeholders. From my understanding, they calculate water evaporation annually, and this was a new rule change that they implemented not that long ago, but this year. Is that right? That's right. They've, what they've ended up doing is in uh, the September quarter, end of it, they've calculated annually based off evapor- a modelled evaporation at Cowra and then put a lot of background assumptions into that. Uh, the dam operator has to calculate the evaporation every month, um, actual evaporation at Wangler. Um, water users pay for a weather station that calculates and does all of that at Wangler. And it was simply asked, why aren't you using that, um, which they haven't been able to provide an answer for. Uh, so what the rule originally was meant to be was actual amount of water and calculated on a quarterly basis of what was in accounts, whereas at the moment what they're proposing to do is debit you on what you had on the 1st of July and effectively hold you, if you've used all your water, the Water New South Wales at uh, a meeting a number of months ago said, oh, well, we'll just hold that debit against you, which we have real concerns if that's even legal under the Water Management Act. Water New South Wales has accepted that there have been some issues with implementing this new evaporation rule um, and acknowledged that it has caused some issues for you guys. What's your response to that admission? The admission's correct. They've got it wrong, um, but it's not good enough to just say, oh, we're sorry, we've got it wrong. We've kept asking for updates on this which they continually dismissed uh, stakeholders and water users on it. 
Uh, and I think further it shows that they have no intent on listening to customers or stakeholders' concerns. The only reason they're addressing this is we've caught them out and actually provided them with with the rule that was agreed to in 2018. Water New South Wales actually disputes that, and they said over the past couple of months they've been speaking almost fortnightly and having regular discussions with your group in particular about this rule change and how they can move it to a better, simpler design. Um, and they're saying that a resolution is really only days away until they can fix it properly. But in in their view, they say that they've, since the rule has been implemented, been consulting with your group on a very regular basis to try and fix this. Would you call that consultation? They were not interested and the department was not interested in any consultation or any discussion around this rule until we provided them with the documents. So yes, they've been trying to consult, which is basically a couple of phone calls to say we're working on it over the last two months once we said you've got it wrong and proved that they had it wrong. Um, so I think it's more so to that structural issue of, in this case, yeah, we've caught them out and they're, they're trying to address it in a poor manner. However, what happens next time? And I think that's really showing in um, water, that Water New South Wales and, and the department don't listen um, and aren't interested in um, doing their jobs effectively. Water New South Wales, if we are to believe their side, which is saying a resolution's only days away, they've said it's disappointing Lachlan Valley Water has chosen not to acknowledge the progress we've made to secure this positive outcome, being, you know, a simpler design. Why has your group decided to come forward now if they have communicated that a resolution would only be days away? Uh, They haven't uh, communicated that it would be days away. They've continued to say we're working on it um, and we, you know, hope to implement it. Uh, I think further to that is we've given them eight to ten weeks to come up with this, and it's effectively in their consultation. They haven't told us anything except, oh yeah, we're working on it. There's been no detail provided, um, and it's really showing between Water New South Wales and the department the lack of communication. That's Lachlan Valley Water Chair Tom Green speaking there with Lani Otaway. Now, in a statement, Water New South Wales has told us while there have been some technical issues with implementation, Water New South Wales is confident they will be resolved through a new simplified design that will apply from next year. It says they've kept the Lachlan Valley Water and key stakeholders informed of the progress since those concerns were first raised in September with regular discussions and fortnightly meetings. It is 13 to 1 on the New South Wales Country Hour, staying in the water space now, and a riverine expert with more than 25 years in the field says the complexity of floodplain harvesting and its impacts on communities have been somewhat ignored in recent changes with state government policy. Dr Martin Toms is a professor of river science at the University of New England. He's labelled the 40% reduction to floodplain harvesting in the Namoy Valley as crude. He says many questions remain unanswered, but I asked him with what's currently on the table if it would work. A blanket approach may be inappropriate and it would then reduce our confidence both in terms of is it having a benefit to the environment but it will also raise concerns for those people who live on floodplains and we're talking graziers, irrigators and other farmers as well. So that complexity is important. And we have to applaud the New South Wales government approach to 
um, getting in here now, and I'm just hoping that this is a the first step into a very complex matter. I actually think it's more complex than just allocating flows within the river channel, because first of all, floodplain floodplain ecosystems are complex. It's not just the size of them, but they're also complex in terms of their ecosystem properties. Now, that complexity provides us a lot of value. It's valuable in terms of ecosystems and the services that they provide to people like you and I, irrigators, graziers, and other people who live on them. In the Northern Basin, you know, those, um, the value, you can actually put it into a dollar value, and the dollar value of ecosystem services from floodplains equals the current um, cotton crop that we get off a lot of these floodplains. So they also have a water requirement as well, and what we're actually seeing is an attempt to actually provide a bulk reduction I think that is very crude. It doesn't acknowledge the complexity of the ecosystem, but also the complexity of its use, farming, and other things, other industries and other uses. And it also ignores the complexity of the social values around floodplain ecosystems. And you think that 40% figure is too crude, do you? Or we, you oh, were, yeah. you're talking yeah, about the blanket approach. Can it be a blanket for each valley? Or do we almost need to look at, you know, the various floodplains individually? Uh, yes, because each floodplain in the northern... Now, in the northern Murray-Darling Basin, so let's say from Wilcannia upstream... And that extends from Mulcanya all the way up towards Toowoomba. That's a big area. Floodplains in the northern basin represent about 60-odd percent of the land surface. And each of the floodplains in the different valleys are different. They're different in terms of how they were formed. They're different in terms of how they flood. And they're different in terms of the ecosystem services that they provide, not only for the environment, but also for people. So having a blanket approach, I think, is really quite crude. And the problem about blanket approaches is it could lead to friction. And I think that for too long, for too long, we've always, we've already sort of said, oh, the water wars. Mm. For too long, we've had water wars. But when I get out and amongst the community, um, since I've been up here in UNE, the thing that's really buoyed me is that the people are getting so peeved about the water wars and they want to work together. So for the government to come in with a crude blanket approach, I'm going, ooh, I get a little bit concerned about that because they're ignoring the natural complexity of the environment that they're trying to manage and they're also ignoring the complexity of the values and the social um, responsibility that people have to look after that landscape. But you can't run away from complexity. Everything's complex. But the thing is, you must be willing to unpack that complexity 
ecological and socially responsible manner. We've seen a few changes from this new state Labor government. They've, you know, we've saw the decrease to the coastal harvestable rights as well. And again, this change here. And the government says that the previous state government didn't do their due diligence, that there's lots of sort of um, rethinking and, and checking going on behind closed doors at the moment. So if this 40% reduction, which could mean some people in the Namoy Valley lose their entitlements to floodplain harvesting completely, if this is the first step how do we sort of go forward in trying to achieve the government's plan of equity and, and river connectivity? Yeah, um, I think that um, we need a little bit of transparency and we also need um, stronger community input into why you're doing what you're doing. The people who live on floodplains, and some of the people have been living on floodplains for generations, they know how this environment works. They know, you know, what's good and what's not good. Like, let's get together and find out why certain decisions have been made and whether we can improve them. And so to me, you know, when I'm, that's just not there. And the big one is, well, why don't you involve people who live on floodplains? Why don't you bring in a First Nations voice to this? Because they've also been living on floodplains for a long time. There are key um, parts of the floodplains that are really important to all of us. I mean, why put a 40% blanket on the Namoy? Because I'd be asking us, what do you hope to do with that 40% reduction? Martin Toms, uh, Dr. Martin Toms is a professor in River Science at the University of New England. And we did invite the Water Minister, Rose Jackson, back on to uh, clarify some of those goals and look at who has been consulted outside of irrigator groups. We hope to hear from her on the Country Hour later this week. It's five to one. Off to the markets, Rob Pierce is at Cowra. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. Numbers remain steady for 3,900 lambs. Quality was very good for the Sean new seasons, and there are a few plainer lines throughout, and they'll mainly trade in heavyweight pens. Stores were well supplied. Medium and heavy trades were 10 to 15 dearer, 20 to 22 kilos, so from 122 to 137, 22 to 24, 138 to 155, averaging 580 to 630 cents. Heavyweights are up to 15 to 20 dearer. 24 to 26, 177 to 179, 26 to 30, 174 to 187, 30 plus 180 to a top of 215, averaging 670 to 680 cents. Stores sold from 46 to 96, up $10, and the balance of the lambs and 1,200 sheep are still to be sold. And this has been Rob Pierce from MLA at Cara. Thank you so much, Rob. Let's move on to Lismore now, Doug Robson. Numbers more than half for the last sale of the year for a total of 900 head. Young cattle made up the largest percentage of the yarding with a smaller penning of cows. Quality was mixed in a cheaper market with not all the usual buyers operating. Restocker weaner steers were 10 to 20 cents cheaper, some sales more. 240 to 314 cents. Restocker weaner heifers, 177 to 272. Yearling steers to restock and background range from 190 to 350 cents and the heifers 190 to 242. The smaller penning of cows were 20 to 30 cents cheaper. Two scores, 130 to 180 cents. Three and four score cows, 180 to 223 cents. This is Doug Robson reporting from Lismore. David Monks at Carcor. 
The second last sale for the year saw numbers lift by 1,700 for a yarding of 8,800 lambs. There was a mixed yarding with some good heavyweight lambs, along with fair numbers of well-finished trade weights, and there were some large runs of top-quality new-season lambs suitable for the restockers. Most of the usual buyers were operating along with the return of a local trade lamb processor. Trade weight lambs were 10 to $20 dearer, with the new-season lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilograms, selling from 118 to 180, to average between 6.45 and 6.80 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs sold from 80 to 150. Heavyweight lambs were up to $40 dearer with new season lambs over 26 kilograms selling for 224 and 240. Restocker lambs were $10 dearer selling from 30 to 110. Hoggets were two dearer selling to 115. There were 6100 mostly good quality mutton yarded where most grades were 10 to 15 cheaper. Merino ewes sold from 12 to 60 while crossbred ewes sold from 18 to 81. Merino weather sold from 42 to 86. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. To Yass with Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers lifted to 17,500 and this included 10,000 new season lambs. The quality still remains mixed with a large percentage of lambs in store condition. The prime trades and heavyweights attracted plenty of attention from producers and the shorn new season lambs demanded a premium. The market sold to dearer trends. Store lambs to 18 kilos lifted $5, 54 to 88. Trade lambs 20 to 22 kilos, 113 to 149. The 22 to 24 lifted $18, 118 to 153. The best of the lambs averaged 640 to 680. Dry woolly lambs averaged 560 to 590. Heavyweights 24 to 26, 162 to 168 or 630 to 640 with extra heavy lambs reaching $200 a head. The old lambs jumped 25 on the trades, 124 to 165, and they averaged 580 to 610. Hoggets lost ground with the best reaching 88. Mutton numbers fell to 12,500. Prices were back 7 to 10. The balance of the lambs and sheep are still to be sold, and this has been Graham Richard. And finally this afternoon to Mossvale Cattle. Good afternoon, David Kent. Good afternoon, Amelia. A slight decrease in numbers for a total yarding of 1,021 fair to good quality cattle. There were a few... Runs of high-yielding yearlings to suit the trade and some good lines of feeder steers. Grown cattle were well supplied. There were a few pens of prime cows and there were large numbers of secondary types in all categories. Not all the usual buyers were present or operating. Good quality cattle were firm to slightly easier. Plainer types considerably cheaper. Prime vealers reached 360 cents. Trade yearling steers were cheaper, 221 to 345. Yearling heifers are processed back 20, 180 to 354. Feeder steers also down 20, 200 to 296. Heifers to feed up to 17 cents cheaper to average 229. There was not as much competition from the restockers, resulting in cheaper trends. Weaner steers 180 to 342. The heifer portion significantly cheaper, 110 to 264. Heavy grain steers slipped 30, 175 to 240. Grant heifers down 15, 180 to 235. Two and three score cows firmed to a few cents easier, 130 to 183. Heavy prime cows fell 30, quality related, 180 to 228 cents per kilo. This is David Kent at Mossvale for MLA. And that is the markets for this Wednesday. Before I let you go, another harvest safety alert has just been issued for the Mid-Murray. Due to the increased risk of fire in the Mid-Murray, the RFS is requesting harvest operators immediately stop what they're doing and check the local weather conditions before deciding whether or not it is safe to continue harvesting. Now, this includes the Murray River, Edward River and southern portion of the Murrumbidgee local government areas. There's also a harvest alert in place for Leeton, Narandra, Griffith, Carathal, Hay and Murrumbidgee. Stay safe and cool out there and I will catch you right back here for more rural and resources news tomorrow from midday.